friends, welcome to the Sunday Sermon segment of We Need God. Please listen as Father Carrozza offers his homily for today, which was recorded live in St. Anne's Parish. When my mother was in the workforce, she had a co-worker who had a mantra that she would recite probably a dozen times a day. And her mantra was this, that's not fair. She used to say it over and over and over again, no matter what the boss said, no matter what policy came up, that's not fair. Why this? Why not that? Blah, 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 blah. And you can just imagine how it came apart, uh, came across. Now, I'm sure that we've all met people who are constantly complaining that everything is not fair, and we've all at some time complained, you know, that's really not fair. And we look for fairness. We want things to be right. Sadly, we know we will never find perfect justice and perfect fairness this side of heaven. Only in heaven will we find everything proper. But we look for as much of it as we can here and now. We want people to be fair with us, and hopefully we try to be fair with them. But when we see things that are unfair, we sometimes get very upset at the people, and sometimes we might even get upset with God and raise our hand against him and say, God, you are not fair. This should not be. For example, we might say, here I am, a good faithful man, a good faithful woman, and I love my children, I take good care of them, I'm faithful to my spouse, I come to church every Sunday, I do everything that I'm supposed to do, and I'm struggling to make ends meet, and it seems like when it's raining, you're pouring... uh, when I'm drowning, you're pouring rain upon me. And then that guy up the street who's cheating on his wife, who, who is a, a thief and you know, he doesn't go to church or anything like that, he gets riches after riches and he's just gliding through life so beautifully. And that's not fair, God. I want you to make sure that the evil suffer and the good are rewarded. <clears throat> so I want you to be fair, God, because when we see what happens, you're not fair. Do you ever hear the old expression, Be very careful for what you pray for, for you just may get it. Well, I think of that when I think of people demanding that God be fair. Because I will tell you straight out, God is not fair. I will repeat that. God is not fair. And I, for one, am very glad that God is not fair. Because if God is fair, I'm in an awful lot of trouble. Why? Let's look at it this way. God created the world, and he gave Adam and Eve paradise. The Garden of Eden was an absolute perfect place. There was nothing wrong in the garden. It was an absolute perfect place to live, and there were an abundance of trees with fruit on it. In other words, there were wonderful things they could enjoy to their heart's desire. And the Lord said, you can indulge in all of these beautiful things, only one you cannot do. You cannot eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or even touch it. For the moment you do that, you will die. And that wasn't a threat of punishment that if they ate of the tree, he would strike them down. It was more the natural response. If you drink poison, it will kill you. And so the Lord warned them not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or even touch it or else they will die. That is a beautifully poetic way of saying, don't try to decide for yourselves what's right and wrong. Don't think that you can say, hey, my mind says this is all right, my heart feels this is wrong, and so I'll follow my mind and my heart. Because he says, I am God and you are not. I cannot be deceived. You can be deceived. 
I will never lead you astray. I will never teach you anything that is wrong. But you can follow false teachings and you can be led astray. So do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't follow what your mind thinks is right or what your heart believes because you are not infallible. You can be misled. Follow me and do what I tell you, even if what I'm telling you goes against what you feel should be right. Follow me and everything will be fine. But we know very well what happened. Adam and Eve did listen to the devil tempting them, who tricked them into believing that God was deceiving them. And they bought the lie and they ate the fruit of the tree. And with that, death and all of the evils we endure to this day came into the world. Satan had his opening. And they destroyed paradise and created the world that we have today. And all of the pains and all of the things we suffer and all the injustices are all a result of that original sin. Now, at that moment, God could have said to them, well, you know, I told you not to do it. You did it anyway. So you know what? Suffer. Unthinkable. He loved us too much for that. And he realized that Adam and Eve were tricked. They didn't realize what they were doing. They didn't, of the fullness of their will, turn away from God. They were confused and they were tricked and they bought the lie of the devil. So instead, the Lord decided that he would come and save us from that sin that we had brought into the world. And that's what we're celebrating today on Christmas Day, that the Lord has come to save us. But look what he came to save us from. He came to save us from sin and from the lies that have been perpetrated and perpetuated since original sin down to today. And to save us by offering the sacrifice for our sins that needed to be paid to bring us back to the Father. And so he came into the world literally to die. He was literally born to die. And the very purpose of the wood of the manger is the wood of the cross. He came into the world to offer the sacrifice for sin that was necessary to restore what was lost by original sin. And he did that when he suffered and died on the cross. And when he rose from the dead, the power of the devil was destroyed. And so now he offers that to us and he says, become one in me in being baptized, receiving his body and blood in the Eucharist. And he gives us that as our food so that we can be one with him on the cross. And even that in giving us his body and blood as food, he didn't give it to us in the form of human flesh because that would be too grotesque if we were asked to physically eat human flesh. Instead, he gave it to us in the form of bread and wine, changed bread and wine into his body and blood so that we could become part of him. And we would eat his body and drink his blood in a very palatable and very easy way. But then he would enter us and we would be brought with him to the cross. He became our food so that we could become part of him. And we would be with him on the cross every time we come and receive the Lord Jesus in Holy Communion. And we speak about that wonderful divine exchange that took place at Christmas, that God humbled himself to become a man so as to exalt man to become God. Do you realize he came for nothing less than to draw us into total union with himself so that as he took on our nature at the incarnation to the fullest extent possible, he now calls us to take on his nature, to become God, to become one with him. We won't actually become other members of the Trinity. Of course, that's a metaphysical impossibility. But we will come as close to that as we possibly can, that he's drawing us into total union with himself. 
And he did that by offering the sacrifice for our sins on the cross at the will of his father who asked him to do so. Now, when that happened, when original sin took place and the father said to the son, will you go down into the world and take on sin and die on the cross to save them? What could the son have said? He could have said, no, that's not fair. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't commit any sins. Why should I have to go down and pay the price on the cross for the sins that they committed against me? They should be doing that to make up to me. I shouldn't have to go and bear their sufferings for them to free them from it. No, that's not fair for you to ask me to do that. I tell you what, I'll make a deal here. Any one of them who has sinned and wants to enter our kingdom, let them die. Let them offer their lives, break their bodies, and spill their blood as an offering to us, and I'll let them into our kingdom. Hey, they did the crime, let them do the time. They pay back for what they did, and we'll let them in. Would that have been fair? Absolutely. How could anybody deny that? Well, sure, that makes perfect sense to us. We have to make up to God for what we did to him. But he didn't do that. He didn't act fairly. He wasn't fair. He was merciful. He was loving. And he said, no, I will not make you do that. I cannot bear to see you have to suffer like that. Rather, I will do it for you and give you my body and blood to unite you with me on the cross. And if we wonder, why would he love us that much to do it? Any parent here can understand that. If you saw your children in pain, Would you not immediately turn to God and say, no, Lord, please take the pain away from my children and let me endure it. Let me suffer, but free my child. You would do it in the bat of an eye. Certainly, you wouldn't even have to consider it. You would do it immediately. And that's God's tremendous love for us that he said, no, I would prefer to suffer all of that pain myself rather than make you have to go through it. And so he did. And he unites us with him in that sacrifice that he did on the cross, first by our baptism and most uniquely again in receiving his body and blood as our food. And when we look upon the true sufferings of Jesus on the cross, if you've ever read anything or seen The Passion of the Christ or any movie that tries to uh, depict what Jesus really suffered, you look at it and say, Lord, Is my miserable, wretched soul worth what you endured on the cross to save me with all of the sins I've committed time and again, over and over again? And how many times I've come to confession and said, I'm never going to do that again. And yet I go out and sometimes the same day I go out and commit those sins over and over again. And I so neglect giving you thanks as I should do. Is my wretched soul worth all the pain that you suffered for me? And the answer comes back from him immediately, yes. It was all worth it. And I would do it a hundred times over again if I had to, to save you from sin. That's how much I love you. That's how much you mean to me. And if you were the only person I ever created, I would have died that death a hundred times over again just to save you. And when we truly look at that, and understand it. It leaves us in awe and amazement and say, wow, look how much God loves us. What has he has done for us? You know, sometimes we hear people saying, what has God ever done for me? Well, if we hear them say that, we could say to them, well, just look at the cross. That's what he did for you. My question is, that's not enough. What more does God have to do for us? 
to believe in him. When we truly understand the sacrifice that he offered willingly for our sins that we should have done, and we say, Lord, you let me off the hook. We should have endured all that pain, yet you let me become one with you by receiving your body and blood as food, and I'm with you in a painless, uh, unbloody manner every time I receive the Eucharist to have my sins forgiven over and over again. Wow, what tremendous love this is, Lord. Thank you for loving me so much. I don't deserve it, but I am grateful to you that you endured the cross for me so that I didn't have to do what I rightly should have done for you. And when we understand and truly look at that, we would say, why would anybody not want to accept that? How could anybody take that wonderful gift of God and throw it back in his face and say, no, God, I don't want it. Jesus, take your salvation and give it to somebody who cares, but I don't really need it. I don't want that. Who would, it, would say that? Who could possibly think of saying that to the Lord after all he did for us? You know who says that? 75% of Catholics today in the Western world. 75% of Catholics basically take the Lord's gift and throw it right back in his face and say, no, God, I don't want your salvation. Give it to somebody else. How do we do that? By refusing to come to church every Sunday. And all the little excuses we give ourselves as why I'm too busy, I don't mind it, or you know, I don't care about it, I don't get anything out of it, all the different things people use as the excuses to keep themselves away from receiving the Lord in Holy Communion so that their sins can be forgiven and they can be on the cross dying with Christ by receiving his body and blood rather than by having nails through their, list, their wrists. And we're not talking about homebound people or people who cannot come to Mass. We're talking about people who could very easily be here, but we know we give ourselves those excuses, the little reasons why we say, I don't really have to be there every Sunday. Time doesn't permit us to look at everything that people use, but I'd like to look at just one today that is very common today, that a lot of people will say, no, they believe in God because nobody would be saying this to God. No, God, keep your salvation. I don't want it. Nobody would mean that. That's not in anybody's mind or heart. Not for a moment do people actually think they're doing that. But in reality, that's exactly what's happening when we give ourselves excuses for why we don't think we have to go to church. We are, in effect, throwing it back in God's face and saying, I don't care about you, or at least not this Sunday because I'm too tired. I'll come to you next Sunday. And one of the biggest excuses I hear people use is they say, well, I'm very spiritual. I love God. I care about him. But I don't have to go to church to pray to God. I can pray to God in my room. Well, first of all, I ask people who say that, okay, so you say you don't need to come to church. You can pray to God in your room. So do you? Do you take an hour every Sunday to sit down and read the Bible and pray? Do you actually do it? I wonder how many people who use that excuse actually do sit in their room and pray for an hour every Sunday. I bet that number is rather small, that usually that's just an excuse we give ourselves that we don't follow through on. And even if somebody does, if they do actually spend the time praying in their room and they say, well, I can pray in my room. Yes, it's true. Yes, you can pray in your room. I pray in my room all the time. But you know what you can't do in your room? You can't worship God. 
You can't come and perform the rituals that are his right to receive of the sacrifices that we offer time and again for him, that it is our duty to present before him and his right to receive from us. It is the third commandment that we worship him every Sunday. And praying in our room is not worship. Coming to Mass and offering the sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, as the priests in the Old Testament used to do over and over again in the temple, that we can only do here at Mass. And most importantly, we cannot receive Holy Communion just by praying in our room. Only here can we receive his body and blood and be on the cross with Christ and have our sins truly forgiven and offer the sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. We need to be here to do that. And so the many different excuses we use, I'm too busy, I work, I'm too tired on Sunday morning, I'd rather sleep. Well, maybe we have to look at ourselves and say, do we use those? Certainly not everybody here. Many of you are very faithful to Sunday Mass. But then there's others who we know are not, and sometimes we might ask somebody, and I do. I very frequently will talk to people that, especially I used to see faithfully every Sunday at Mass, and then after a while they start to trail off, and it's maybe only sporadically I see you for Mass. And having been here as your pastor for 11 years, I've seen many, especially of our younger people, grow up, and I see people who used to be faithful here now not coming regularly. And sometimes I have asked you, I've come up and had a personal conversation. I've texted you, I've phoned you. I said, when are we going to see you in church again? And I said, come on, are you gonna start going? And what is the reason that every single time is given to me by the young person or and not so young people? I've done this with grown adults as well. Why are you not in church on Sunday? You know what the answer always comes back? I don't know. I don't know why. I used to go to church every Sunday. I said, yeah, I know that. I used to see you here faithfully. Well, what happened? Uh, one Sunday I missed, and then one Sunday became two, and then eventually I started going maybe only once a month, and if I missed a Sunday here or there, it didn't matter. And eventually it got down to basically only Christmas and Easter. And when I, when I say that, I say, okay, I ask you now, think back on the times when you were faithfully coming to church every Sunday, when you were praying every day, and when you were truly trying to live as a disciple of Jesus. When were you happier? Then, when you were faithful following the Lord, or today? 100% of the time, the answer always is, when I was faithfully following the Lord. And then, then I say, well, then why do you stop? Why do you not give yourself what you know, what you have admitted is giving you the happiness that all the other things you're looking for, that extra hour of sleep on Sunday morning or whatever it may be, cannot bring you? Why do you deny yourself what you have proven has brought you that peace, that happiness of living in the presence of the Lord each and every day? And they always say, yeah, I know, I, I kind of need just to give myself that little kick. I know I should do it, but I give myself that boost. I need to have it to get myself going. Well, maybe today, the day of Christmas joy, is the day to give ourselves that boost and say, you know what, maybe I need this now. Maybe today is the day to say, I was much happier when I was with the Lord, and I will come back to him now, and I will follow him regularly, and we'll know again the peace that we once knew in our hearts. 
And so we realized the greatest gift we were ever given was, especially at Christmas, was the gift we were given the first Christmas, when God took on our nature to dwell in our world. He took on our nature so that we could take on his, and he gave us his body and blood as our food so that we could take on that nature, take him into ourselves, and allow ourselves to be totally absorbed into him. My friends, that's exactly why the Lord took on our nature to its completeness so that he could absorb us totally and completely into ourselves and draw us all into a sacred intimacy with him to give us a joy and a peace in this world that nothing in the world could compare to and ultimately the joy of being with him forever in his kingdom. And that is a far greater gift than anything we're going to open today at Christmas that received from anybody else. Today, the day of Christmas joy, let this be the day that the Lord is born again truly into your heart, that you know him and say, Lord, you are the greatest gift I have ever believed. Absorb me into yourself. Draw me into union with you so I can know the peace that only you can bring. My dear brothers and sisters, the Lord loved us enough to enter our world to draw us back into the world that we lost by original sin and give us back all of the joy and all the beauty that he so desires that we have. And he wants to give it to all of us each and every day. Open your mouth and let him feed you. Open your heart and let him fill you and let his love transform you and make you holy and let him give you his peace. Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening to this week's homily by Father Carosa. If you enjoyed this homily, please pass the word on to your friends and invite them to listen. For more materials from Father Carosa, please visit www.fathercarosa.com.